I'll be talking about more than just the Benjamins. Welcome to Fintech Beat, where finance, technology, and policy come together. I'm your host, Chris Brummer, and the future of finance is now. Stefan Thomas is worth hundreds of millions of dollars, but he can't access his fortune. As the New York Times recounted earlier this year, the German-born programmer now living in San Francisco was an early investor in Bitcoin and established an international reputation as the chief technology officer for Ripple and later CEO of Coil. But he forgot the password for unlocking his digital fortune holding over 7,200 Bitcoins. And to make things worse, he's only got two guesses left to figure out the passwords for the wallet holding the Bitcoins before the wallet seizes up and encrypts its contents forever. Now, this kind of story will get anyone's attention, and it certainly attracted ours. Indeed, those who know this podcast best know that the FinTech Beat community isn't just a collection of wonks, not just nerds, but yes, we're people too. And given the sheer immensity of this particular situation, it's one that's worthy of even deeper digging, especially since so many have had similar experiences, if less extreme. Indeed, Stefan's dilemma highlights the importance of the many lower-profile issues that people often overlook when talking about crypto, like the importance of custodianship, the fragility and centrality of private keys, and the risk facing even the most consummate of professionals. So with all of that in mind, we're going to dedicate this episode to Stefan, to growing from mistakes, and to the humility of accepting the limitations of technology and the people who build it. Always look on the bright side of life. Always look on the light side of life. Stefan, thank you so much for coming back to the show. Yeah, great to, great to be back. And uh, I'm looking forward to sharing some lessons that are were very expensive for me and are free for you. So hopefully it should be interesting. Well, thank you so much. Uh, we are indeed trying to look on the bright side of life here and appreciate the opportunity to learn from you. And it's just extremely generous of you to stop by. Uh, you know, this is such an important story, one that has attracted attention around the world. So let's start at the beginning. Uh, you're a technologist and, and really one of the more thoughtful people out there. Uh, but maybe we can just kick things off with just how it is that you ended up in crypto and and in Bitcoin in the first place. Yeah, my my background is actually not, or at that time wasn't in, in fintech at all. I was a web developer, so I made websites for people. Um, and as a web developer, I was a freelancer, so I, I was sort of self-employed. And, um, you know, as, as you're self-employed, your income is very variable, let's say, and, and you also tend to work with freelancers in other countries. And so I experienced a lot of friction with uh, the payment system. You know, like for example, I lost my bank account in the UK because I overdrew it too much because I, you know, sometimes had no income, and so um, my rent was would still get withdrawn from my bank account and it would get get shut down. And so um, from that experience, I always thought that it was kind of odd how a lot of other uh, electronic services um, were really optimized and and really uh, slick these days with apps on your phone and so on. And payments felt like it was so far behind. And, and you know, it's sort of like 
if you are within the 90% use case, like you're fine, but if you're not, then suddenly it's, it's really bad. And so um, I always thought that that would be something that'd be great to fix. And when I heard about Bitcoin, it was sort of the first time that it seemed like someone who was just technically minded, didn't necessarily have a background in finance, uh, could actually get involved and, and make a difference. When you first did get involved, uh, you know, like, did you did you think at that point in time that that Bitcoin was going to be you know one of the next big things in payments or or fintech more more generally, or, or was it a bit more of a kind of a hobby where that 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 attracted your interest, but you, you weren't really thinking about it it blowing up in the way that it that it did. Yeah, it's actually really hard to convey what it felt like to be part of the. Bitcoin community in like 2010. Um, one example is that there was no Bitcoin price. Like there wasn't like a website you could go to um, until I think Mt. Gox, where you just saw like here's the the price of Bitcoin today, you know. And so it, there wasn't this mindset of oh I'm gonna buy Bitcoin and then it's gonna go up and we're we're all gonna be rich. Like that that sort of started like towards the end of 2010 when when the first rally happened and Mt. Gox sort of launched and. Um, you know, that was really the start of that side of it. Um, and so at the time, it was a lot of people who were just interested in the technology. They were interested in cryptography, distributed systems, payments. Um, and yeah, in my case, I was very interested in like, could this technology sort of help make people's lives better when it comes to like payments? And that was why I started spending my free time uh, working on Bitcoin uh, related stuff. When it came to that early work, and you know, when you're getting involved and in, in, in really finding a, a bit of an intellectual interest and in, in, in working a bit in it in that space, I mean, how exactly were you accessing or, or getting Bitcoin at that point in time? Were you were you mining it, or or, or did you come across it um, uh, in some kind of other other way? Yeah, so I, I bought myself a little bit of Bitcoin, which was mostly um, you know to kind of figure out how how that works. There was a over the counter trading channel. It was basically just a chat room where you could say like, hey, I want to buy some Bitcoin. Anybody want to sell some? And um, you know, people could put like various things up for offer. And, and this is, for example, where the famous pizza trade happened where somebody was like, hey, I, I want to get two pizzas and I want to pay in Bitcoin. Anybody want to order those for me? And so somebody called, I think it was Papa John's or like some pizza shop um, on their behalf and, and got paid back in Bitcoin, 10,000 Bitcoins for two pizzas. That was a really expensive pizza. <laughs> well, at the time it was fine. It was a fine price. And I guess that kind of gets gets in part to the to 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 the next sort of series of, of of questions. So you know you're you're getting involved, and you know you're 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 obviously um, um, purchasing Bitcoin uh, over the counter and the like. Uh, at what point did you did you think to yourself you may need a a way to to store it in a particularly uh, sort of high t- or special way. I mean, uh, did, did the way in which you were keeping your your Bitcoin evolve over time, or or did you know from very very early on that you wanted to have a, a kind of a, a very um, uh, technically sophisticated wallet? Yeah. So at the at the earlier days, like back in two thousand ten, you know, people didn't really think too much about securing the Bitcoin. Like there was even still talk about resetting the blockchain and resetting everyone's balances back to zero and things like that. So, um, you know, it it was definitely perceived as a very experimental technology. It was also, um, I would say, perceived as like probably some other cryptocurrency will be made that's a lot better, that's learning from Bitcoin's uh, mistakes and and sort of 
will take over at some point. So like, it wasn't so much that, that, you know, at least in my case, like I wasn't super thinking super long-term. Um, and so as it, as it related to my personal wallet, I, I just had a, like an unencrypted copy on my computer for, for during that time. However, there was a, um, a community bounty for making animated video about Bitcoin. And it was basically like the community pooling some Bitcoins together. It was, uh, you know, at the peak, the bounty was about 13,000 uh, Bitcoins that was offered. And at the time, there was like a little bit less than what you'd have to pay to get it done commercially. But with like friendship pricing, it was it was about break even. And so I reached out to some friends of mine um, and, and we started working on this. And we eventually won the bounty and the amount that was actually paid out was 9,052. I paid 2,000 on just expenses like to cover my, my own costs for like the voiceover artists and other, other people who had worked on the project. And then the, the rest I, I put into a dedicated wallet, which I called the Bitcoin Marketing Fund. And so for that wallet, I was much more concerned about losing it because I was, it was sort of, I felt like it wasn't my money, right? It was sort of, money that I wanted to use um, for the benefit of the community and, and kind of to, to someday realize my dream of making payments better. And so I put it aside and um, I actually made two backups. I had a main copy and then two backup copies and through a string of, you know, you can call it negligence, you can call it bad luck, um, but I lost uh, access to all three of them. And so that's how it all, all happened. Oh, so 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 basically, it's not as if you you had one particular wallet and you transferred the Bitcoin from from those wallets to this uh, you know Iron Key wallet system. Um, this is really from the earliest days. You put them into uh, these wallets and 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 basically were no longer able to remember the way to access or the the the, the passwords to access those wallets. Exactly, and. Again, it's because it was so early, there were no uh, companies that were focused on being a custodian. There was no um, hardware wallet or at least no very mature hardware wallet at that time. And so your options for storing your Bitcoin were pretty limited. And so I had to pretty much come up with you know, solutions that were based on existing tools. So I used a software called TrueCrypt, which was basically a way to create a encrypted volume um, for one of the copies, and then for another copy, I used the iron key. Um, and so I used just more traditional kind of encryption technologies to protect the wallet rather than something that's Bitcoin specific. From that point in time, I mean, when did you when did you realize that you had forgotten the the password? Yeah, so we we got the bounty um, early in 2011, and I lost access to it, or I realized that I lost access to it in July of 2011. And basically what happened, and one of the big lessons I learned, if, if anyone out there has data that they need to protect, like test your backups, because I had two backups. And so I was feeling pretty confident that nothing could happen. And then when I lost access to the main copy, I realized that none of the backups were actually working and were actually accessible to me. And I could have noticed that if I had been testing those backups, like once a month, for example, I would have noticed it before I lost access to the main copy and it would have been fine. So um, yeah, definitely lesson learned, test your backups, like make backups, obviously, and then test them. Were you immediately pretty stressed about it? Or, or um, you know, because right now, it, you know, there, there's been almost a, really a decade that, that's passed since that point in time when you realized, you know, um, that, that you couldn't access any of that information, even with the backups. I mean, was, was there an immediate kind of sense of, of, of of panic, or or did that really set in as the price of Bitcoin just kind of started to to move upwards? 
No, so that was that was very immediate. Um, once I lost the coins, I was panicked. I was uh, desperate. I was trying to everything conceivable to recover it. I felt terrible. Um, and I mean, obviously, as a Bitcoin expert, you know, like I, I had inv- advised companies on how they should secure their Bitcoins. And so it was incredibly, you know, just bad and 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 terrible that that I made this kind of mistake. And so um it was it was a very difficult couple of weeks where I would just sort of run to the computer and try some way to recover the coins and then it wouldn't work. And I would just sit in bed or lie in bed and stare at the ceiling and try to come up with another way. And it was after a couple of weeks of that I sort of realized like, yeah, I might not I might not get these back. And once I once that sort of sunk in, I um I just had to make like a conscious decision that look, I, you know, I can sort of give up here and then just sort of, you know, stop doing anything for the rest of my life. Or I can say like, Hey, let's get back to work. And I earned these Bitcoins with the video that we made and I can still contribute lots of other things to the community. And so, um, you know, it, it, it doesn't have to, to be the end. So I'm very glad that I, I, I had that thought. Yeah. You know, I mean, cause, cause really, I, I think there's a lot of resilience there, you know, I mean, just, just at that moment in time, there's probably, it's probably a little bit solitary, you know, um, uh, anybody who, who wants to, uh, you know, do a lot, we're all at, at times a bit of, of perfectionists, you know, and it's easy to, to kind of beat yourself up. I mean, but did you run across or, or did you talk to other people who were similarly situated? Um, uh, uh, at, at any point, uh, as particularly when you were first learning uh, uh, or realizing that, that that you could no longer access your your, your Bitcoin, or and 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 uh, did you draw any lessons, uh, you know, in, in terms of sort of how you've been able to rebound from from other uh, programmers and just really even even sort of folks who wanted to just experiment with Bitcoin early on, who may have found themselves in very similar situations. Yeah, I, I definitely heard a lot of stories of people losing bitcoins. I mean, you you pointed out in in the intro that uh, in the New York Times article they talk about the uh, the the how widespread this problem is. Um, you know, there's something like twenty percent of the entire uh, bitcoin money supply is said to be lost. And what I would sort of say is about that is is with crypto, it is a lot like you know something like gold or cash where. Um, if you want to um, hold it yourself, um, it's sort of your responsibility to secure it. And that comes with a certain risk. Just like if you had a huge number of gold bars at home, you know, that would come with a lot of risk of somebody breaking in or, you know, something happening. And so um, Bitcoin is no different. And like, I, I, it definitely influenced my thinking. Again, not just what happened to me, although that's obviously the most salient experience always when something happens to you personally. But um, I had people in my family, like my dad and my sister, like who lost Bitcoin. And like, um, it is such a common thing, especially back then, um, that it, it definitely felt to me like there was something systematic and like systemic. And so I started thinking a lot about how people should interface with this technology and, and you know, whether it's, you know, necessarily the right way for everybody to try to protect their own keys or whether there needs to be more institutions getting involved and providing insurance and things of that nature. Yeah, you know, that's exactly where I was going to sort of uh, move is, is, is how exactly has that experience impacted your, you know, how you view both crypto, but also financial technology. And, you know, it, it, it's an enormously unique, well, maybe not unique, but it's certainly a, a 
it's an interesting story and and it's it's quite an, an extreme experience that you've gone through. I mean, how has have your views of crypto evolved? And then, you know, how maybe have your views of financial technology more more generally uh, been shaped by this? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that it sort of taught me something about, you know, the institutions that we have, they exist for a reason. Like the reason banks were created originally was because people didn't want to store their gold at home anymore, right? And so they wanted to, to have a bank stored for them. And that, that gives all sorts of benefits in terms of like now you can take um, you know deposit like proof of deposits and and you don't have to carry the physical gold around with you and um, I think there is there are some parallels um, obviously crypto is different than something physical um, I think personally that it is important it's an important almost human right that we are allowed to have private property and that includes having gold at home and having uh, your own keys for your own bitcoins but I also think that as a practical matter, you know, that's probably not the right approach for most people. And so in the Bitcoin community at that time, there was almost like an a, a, an ideology that like any kind of institutions are bad because they're not decentralized. And so um, I think nowadays it's a lot more nuanced and I think a lot more people are um, are thinking that way. And, and I would credit um, I would credit Ripple with that because I joined Ripple because they had that sort of ideology and, and nobody else in the blockchain space at the time really seemed to have that. And I was very interested in just how do you make payments better? And like that seemed easier to do if you had collaboration with the existing financial industry and with regulators and so on than if you were trying to tear the whole system down and rebuild it from the ashes. You know, it's just interesting because you come onto the scene at a very early point in the Bitcoin story, uh, at a time when the ecosystem was still very basic, very rudimentary, and you didn't even have some of the tools that people kind of uh, take for granted nowadays, however imperfect uh, they may still be. But when you think about fintech in the context of payments, how has this uh, shaped how you think about payments? There's obviously a lot of promise, but but clearly there's a long way yet to go as well. Yeah, I, I you know I've worked on this now for ten plus years, and um, there have been a lot of sort of formative experience. I think the lost bitcoins was one. Um, there was another one where we wanted to make a protocol update to the Bitcoin protocol, um, and I was involved in a lot of the review and, and some of the debates of of how to roll it out and convincing. Um, miners to vote yes on it and things like that, and just the governance process in general. And I realized that like this sort of viewpoint that Bitcoin is like pure mathematics and it's so different from, you know, let's say a central bank, like wasn't necessarily true. Um, there was governance in Bitcoin, just like there's governance in, in a central bank. You know, there was politics, just like there is um, in, in traditional finance. And so um, I... I got a, definitely a little bit disillusioned, but then also I viewed that as an opportunity. And, and so joining joining Ripple, like we got to work with a lot of uh, people from banks who knew how the existing, the traditional payment systems work, how the traditional finance system work. And I just took it as an opportunity to really just understand how all of these different components work. And um, I remember there was this uh, one time where we hired a consultant um, and we were paying them like some crazy amount. I think it was like $12,000 a day or $20,000 a day. And I asked one of our uh, business development folks, like, why are we paying this person so much money? That seems like way too much money to pay someone. And they said very simply, like the reason we're paying this person so much is because they're one of the few people in the world who understands how the, the global payment system actually works. Because 
even people at banks often only have like a viewpoint of, of some some aspects of it or like the corners that they personally touch. But it is so big and so complicated with so many different layers that there's very, very few people that actually understand the whole thing. And so um, I think what, what blockchain did more so than like the necessarily the technology or, or sort of a ideological drive towards pure decentralization, I think those, those things are interesting, but not necessarily the way forward. But I think what it did do is it forced a lot of um, people to think about how we're doing finance, how we're doing payments, and maybe question some of the approaches. And um, it certainly set me on that path. Do you think you'll ever get access to the Bitcoins in your wallet? Um, what, what kind of hope do you hold out? And do you see any solutions in, perhaps ironically, uh, new and innovative technologies? Um, yeah, it's interesting. So, you know, as soon as the story came out, I had a lot of people reaching out, you know, some people just with uh, sympathy and, and their own stories, which which was uh, just incredible to see just, just how nice people were to a complete stranger they've never met. But I think there's something about loss that like, you know, we all feel the same thing, right? And 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 so um, I think that kind of ties ties people together. Um, but then also people uh, reached out with suggestions, and they reached everything from I think the most common one by far was to try hypnosis to try to remember the password. Um, some all kinds of people uh, suggested like a supernatural or a religious approaches to to solving the problem. Um, you know, I've, I've literally gotten offers from. Uh, you know, monasteries and in, in the Himalayas to come and, and ha- let them find the password for me and things like that. Um, and then finally, the um, uh, the last category would be people who had like who are hackers who are who are offering technical approaches. And a lot of them were sort of overestimating their own abilities. You know, so once it got down to the details, they were sort of ah, sorry, yeah, we can't do that. Um, but I ended up with a couple who think they can do it and they seem credible enough. Um, you know, one company that actually works with the U.S. government a lot in terms of helping them with data recovery and, and working with the FBI, helping them with forensics. Um, and so there is a chance that it's recoverable. It depends mostly on the strength of the password that I chose, which I, I unfortunately don't remember exactly. Um, but yeah, there is a possibility. And, and, you know, in some ways I feel really you know, privilege because I got to tell the story in a broad context. And so a lot of people were reaching out to help me. And so now I'm also thinking about like, do I need to create some kind of, uh, you know, self-help group or resource for other people who are in the same situation so that they can hopefully like get similar uh, help and resources? I'm sure someone would probably say, hey, look, I'll take that wallet off your hands for a million dollars if you agree to to stick around long enough for say maybe a decade to answer any questions I may have as I try to figure out uh, that password um, because that person may think, hey, look, if I, I'll give you a million dollars, but um, I think that there may be a technology solution in the near future uh, and I'll make a bet on that, basically, you know, thinking that either maybe a, a quantum com- computing solution may come along or another solution uh, that comes down the pike uh, to, to effectively guess the correct password. Have you considered any kind of collaboration or a deal of some sort to ensure that you get at least something um, out of your predicament? Yeah, so it's actually interesting. I think like in the, what I would call the high-end data recovery space, it's actually pretty common for people to work on contingency basis. So um, a lot of the professional teams that I was talking to are, are 
willing to do all the work and and potentially walk away with nothing if it doesn't work, um, which is a pretty good deal. And it's 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 a lot better deal than selling the wallet because when you sell the wallet, you sort of yeah, I guess you're sort of de-risking it a bit, but you're also paying for that de-risking. And because there's probably nobody in the world that is more of an expert on how to recover a wallet like that than me at this point, um, after thinking about it for 10 years, like it's it's probably not worth trying to sell. And then also they are they are exposed to counterparty risk where like they don't know for sure that you know my story is true and everything, but I do. So um I, I think it's easier for me to recover it than for anyone else. But I have definitely considered it. One person reached out saying that um since I don't know the password, if I would just give them the iron key for free. <laughs> and I was like, wow, that's, you know, cheeky for asking, but, you know, I respect the hustle, you know. I know the price of Bitcoin has shrunk a bit, but uh, at its peak, do you know what the maximum value of the Bitcoins in the wallet were? Yeah, I mean, what was the, what was the peak uh, price? Uh, let's see. I know what got a lot of people's attention was that the New York Times is, had done uh, their own calculation in January and estimated the value at, I think, $220 million. Uh, but since then, the value has obviously gone up. Yeah, so I'm, I'm, looking, I'm looking at the chart right now. So the, the peak price was like 58200 So if I take that like absolute peak price and I multiply with 7002 which is the number of Bitcoins, you end up with about $400 million. It's yeah, it's it's a lot of money, and uh, I mean to to be fair, like when I lost it, it was a lot less, and oftentimes that's really the number that I personally look at. Do you remember that number, the the value at the time you forgot the password? Yeah, it was about one hundred forty thousand dollars, which was still like you know enough for me to make to be depressed for two weeks. Like I was in debt at that time because of my previous startup, and I had still I didn't have a job, and I was doing full time Bitcoin like volunteer work that wasn't paying a dime, and so. I was sort of like, hey, I need to, I need to get a job or something. Like, and and losing that money was was devastating. But um, when I look back at it now, you know, it, you know, doing this 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 press and like talking about the story, I I was expecting that it would be draining, but it's actually really encouraging because we've had this really tough year with like COVID and everything. And thinking back to that story, it's sort of a low point in my life, and and so much good things have happened since then. So it reminds me that like never to lose hope and, and always to move forward and things like that. And so it's actually quite motivating to talk about it. Stefan, thanks so much uh, for joining us again. I, I really hope you can crack those passwords and get to your Bitcoins. Uh, but I find your resilience here quite inspiring. Um, there is nothing in life like being able to come back and to keep going even after taking the proverbial punch to the gut. And it's something that you've done and should be extremely proud of. Uh, thanks so much for sharing your story with our audience. Yeah, thank you. It was fun. All too often, people forget that behind markets and innovation are people. People think up ideas behind the tech, people put the technology into motion, and people make mistakes. The question, of course, is whether or not that technology operates in ways that anticipate the strengths and weaknesses of our very humanity, and whether governments need to step in where it doesn't. Certainly, there's a lot to be optimistic about when it comes to technology, especially as so much energy and focus are directed towards giving people more tools when it comes to managing their financial lives. But it's also far from perfect, and the shortcomings can come at the most unexpected times 
and can impact not only society, but how fortunes are made and lost. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed the show, please be sure to subscribe on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And we'd love to get your feedback. If you'd like to get in touch, just hit me up at Chris Brummer DR. That's at C-H-R-I-S-B-R-U-M-M-E-R-D-R. We'd love to hear from you.